Hi, welcome to All Access at filmmusicmedia.com. I'm Joe Kramer, and today we're going to talk about my work on Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, probably touch on Jack Reacher, Way of the Gun, and a bunch of other stuff I've scored that you've never heard of or seen. I hope you enjoy it. Joe, thank you so much uh, for inviting me here to your studio and sitting down, and I really appreciate your time. Mm -hmm. um, so to start off, you know, let's go back. I know we've interviewed in the past before, right. but let's go back to the beginning and, and okay. talk about... Uh, Growing up, what was it that got you interested in this field and got you interested in composing in general? Uh, there were two factors. One was... Sorry. No, that's no, good. I just want to make sure oh, yeah. that that's usable. Okay, yes. Well, there were two factors. One factor was, as a kid, I loved Star Wars and Superman and Raiders, and so I had those soundtrack albums because right. I loved the music from them. Uh, my father was an amateur musician. He wrote songs. He and my uncle would record songs at home using reel-to-reel uh, -reel recorders and ping-ponging between decks to yeah. sort of build up fake multi-track recordings. Um, so I grew up in an environment where people were writing music and performing music, and I just thought it was second nature. Yeah. Um, that's what, and the films are what got me interested in the music. Right. You know, my love of music and my love of these movies is what sort of turned me on to film music. Right. As a fan and a listener. As a composer, what finally sort of, what got me into it was when I was in junior high school, I met a senior at the school uh, named Scott Storm. And Scott was making films on Super 8, feature, independ feature length independent films on Super 8. And... He cast me in one of them as an actor, okay. you know, because I was in the drama club. Oh, and, yeah, you know. yeah. and so er, very early on in the shooting of this movie, I asked him what he did for music in his movies. Right. And he explained to me how he used uh, stuff from his record collection, Tangerine yeah. Dream or Peter Gabriel, uh, Philip Glass, uh, some Led Zeppelin. And so I said, well, you know, don't you get in trouble if you try to screen these? And he was like, well, you know, yeah, independent film to get away with it. But it'd be awesome to have into you know uh custom made music for yeah. my film i just don't know anybody who can do it and i said well i have a studio at home maybe i could do it and he was like no way so we we tried it on this movie and it worked and so at 15 i scored a movie wow. which you know was pretty cool for me and then that was the summer and fall uh into into like end of 86 into 87 mm -hmm. Then he went to School of Visual Arts in New York, and one of his roommates or classmates was Brian Singer, right. who was going there from New Jersey. <laughs> and they became friends, and they would come up to Albany on the weekends and shoot their student films in Albany because they wanted their films to look different than all their classmates who were filming them in Manhattan right, or right. Central Park. Yeah, yeah. So... I met Brian when I was maybe 16, and so somewhere in there, Scott made a second film on Super 8, in which Brian was one of the lead actors, and I was the other one. Uh -huh. Brian had never acted in a movie before and sort of wanted to experience it, Yeah. so he, you know, uh, so he knew what actors were going through right, when right. he was directing them. Right. And, and I did the music for that movie as well, and throughout high school and early college, I would sometimes do little pieces of music for the guys, for their school film school projects right, right. Um, film class projects and then when it came time to go to college I just sort of looked at you know my options I <laughs> loved acting and I loved music but in the end I decided to go with music first of all I thought that what I was good at in music was more distinctive than what I would have brought to the table as an actor right you know um, 
And the other thing was I just didn't want to sort of have to compete based entirely on my appearance. You know uh-huh. what I mean? As a composer, who cares what you look like, really? <laughs> right. But as a you know an actor, it's everything. Right. And I didn't want to be like perfect for a part, but lose out because I was an inch too tall. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So th- once I decided to pursue music, I looked at a bunch of different colleges, and Berkeley in Boston was the most appealing to me because they had recording studios. Right, right. And they had a, a sort of their catalog advertised a more rock and roll friendly environment than, say, a conservatory. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And. I went and interviewed with with uh, the um, admit, ad, admissions people there and got in the school. And it was I went there to really be like a singer-songwriter, like a Paul McCartney sort of, yeah. you know, um, band leader, right. if you will. Uh, pop band, rock band. So the whole band. film music thing kind of faded into... Well, I mean, I had done it, but I never right. considered pursuing it. You know, yeah, yeah. I... Th- what I did as a film composer in those days was very simple compared right. to like what John Williams was doing. You know what I mean? I had no understanding of like beat sync or mm-hmm. timing, you know, counting frames. And I had no equipment with which to do that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, if you didn't shoot a film on Super 8, the only way you could edit would be to like cut from one VCR to another, which right. put like a big rainbow stripe on every edit. I mean, yeah, and it's it's unwatchable. You know what I mean? Um, so equipment was so primitive that I just didn't, re- you know, I had no craft. It was all instinct, right. and I just didn't think to take it very seriously. It was fun, and I enjoyed doing it, but I didn't think I would ever be qualified to pursue that as a career. Um, but when I got to Berkeley, and, I, and frankly, I also didn't know that Berkeley had a film music program. Oh, okay, wow, yeah. So when I got there and I discovered they did, I became interested. And as I did more research, it turned out you couldn't do their film music program without declaring it as your major. Okay. And it also turned out that I could take most of the courses I wanted in the songwriting program mm-hmm. without declaring that as a major. So essentially, I majored in film music and minored in songwriting. Okay. And... Uh, that got me access to the studios as a performer rather than a producer, so I could still record demos uh, or, you know, uh, songs, you know, multi-tracks. Uh, but then I also had all this experience learning conducting and orchestration and right. techniques and composing and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. That's a, a long journey there. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's... And so while I was at Berkeley, Singer won Sundance with his film Public Access. He won right. a grand jury prize. And so as I was finishing up Berkeley and getting ready to move to Los Angeles, he was getting usual suspects up and running. Right. So it was during those days in the 80s working with Brian that I first met Chris McQuarrie. Right. Um, one of your right. biggest collaborators. Right. Well, Br- Chris drove Brian from New Jersey up to Albany sometimes to shoot this Super 8 movie. Right. And so, you know, we became friends very early on back then in the yeah. 80s. And then um, throughout the years, we crossed paths and kept in touch. And so when I moved to L.A. in 94, Chris lived right around the corner from me. And since I didn't have a car, he drove me everywhere. And we just sort of would talk about movies and music and everything. Yeah, yeah. And we just realized we had a lot of the same tastes and a lot of the same instincts. Right. And sort of decided that if we could, we'd work together someday. Wow. So. You moved to L.A. to mm-hmm. pursue a career and everything and to start a career. And when you're a composer and you're doing that, and I mean, you're... Way, you know, you've done a lot of films and, I mean, big films and everything. But in those early years when you're young and you have this kind of, I guess, maybe a little bit of an ego, maybe you're like trying to develop a sound. Is it, mm-hmm. is it, how do you, 
develop a sound? Like, is it just, do you look at yourself like, I want to be classical, like traditional composer. I want to be modern. I, were you in that process? Do you ever go through that process? Of, I want to be, I, this is what Joe Kramer is going to sound like. This is what my music is going to be. Or did you just kind of just look at the projects and just kind of decided like what's right for it? Or did you want to have like a, a brand sound? I do think, uh, just as an abstract idea, as an academic philosophy, yeah. you've got to do what's right for the movie. Right, right. Part of being a film composer is adapting to what the movie needs. Right. So if I was, you know, given the chance to score, a, uh, you know, say, a Tron movie or a sequel to Blade Runner or something like that, yeah. I would probably, my instinct would be to go in a more synthesized direction. Right. In keeping with the original films, but also, you know, it the sort of landscape, visual landscape of those movies lends itself to a synthesized right. feeling. Um, that's on a style, on a stylistic level, but I, you do have a sound, and I mean, I can, right. I can hear well, it through, Joe, through a, uh, Jack Reacher and Mission mm-hmm. Impossible, and you have the sound, even in Dawn Patrol, I mean, movies right. that are different approaches and everything. So right. when you, how does that language, I guess, start yeah. out, you know, those kind of uh, techniques and stuff that you sort of built into your, I guess, that database yeah, of... Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. Well, I mean, we all have a toolbox right. <laughs> that we rely on to get through jobs. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And to me, a lot of our job is problem solving. Right, right. Which is that, you know, I need to score this moment, and I need to score this moment. The moments in between, they don't need music so much, but it's too short for me to duck out and come back in. Right. So I have to figure out a way to stay there without getting in the way. Like, that's just one example of a problem you have to solve. Another problem might be that this is a scene where a character is very sad, but the actor just wasn't in the moment on the day. Okay, yeah, yeah. And they're sort of going through the motions, but it's missing that power yeah. when it's played with that music. And so I've got to help support that and bring that out so that a very small twitch in the actor's face might be read as something much bigger if the music sort of swells at that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, another problem might be continuity, that things, you know, don't feel connected when you watch it without music. And then once you put the music in, it sort of glues it together. Right, right. Uh, a specific example of something like that would be Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. Uh from the moment where the characters go to Blenheim and sort of capture the the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. um, spoiler alert, <laughs> until the foot chase starts through London, mm-hmm. one concern was that the movie felt like it had all these different moments that felt like endings. So when Tom pulled the mask off, you know, they were afraid that the, you know, I guess at one test screening, they thought it was like, oh, that's the end of the movie now. Now we know the whole plot. The story's over. So right. there was this directive to keep the music going and never make it feel like the movie's ending. Make right. these feel like okay. reveals that are heading towards an ending. Right. So that's a problem, so to speak, that the score had to solve. Wow. So where do these tools come from? It just comes from years of experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, I, I suppose it starts... My probably my two biggest influences as a symphonic composer are John Williams and George Martin, mm-hmm. who produced the Beatles. Right. So if you can imagine a mix between Star Wars and Superman the movie and I Am the Walrus, <laughs> and you know, right. um, the, uh, let's say Sergeant Pepper, you know, yeah. A Day in the Life, you know what right, I mean? Yeah, yeah. If you can imagine what those things mixed together in a little kid's head uh-huh. create. Right. You might have some idea of where I was at in my headspace. Now, when I started doing scores for Scott, you know, I only had like an 8-bit sampler, mm-hmm. the Mirage, and I had like a Casio 
CZ101. Right. And a four track. Yeah. I had no way to synchronize to film. We would just watch it and sort of eyeball it. <laughs> Sometimes I would sort of Morricone it and do the music first. He'd right. tell me I need something sad. It's about two minutes long. Yeah. And then I'd give it to him and he'd rock and roll it till it felt right and then record it to the film. Yeah. Because Super 8 film had the soundtrack right on the film. Right. So you actually had to record it to the film. <laughs> and through a fluke of technology, if you recorded something... Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't completely erase what was underneath it, so he could sort of cheat and get four tracks out of the left and right plus the overdub. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was a total cheat, and if you screwed up, you were kind of that was the big thing too back then. Is if you screwed up, you were kind of stuck with the mistake. Right. You couldn't really go back and fix it. So back then, my tools were much simpler. You know, yeah, um, simpler sounds. There wasn't really the technology or the the um, facility to do anything even sort of remotely believable as a live orchestra using right, samples. Right. Yeah. So rather than sort of sound like a, you know, beep, 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 trumpet, yeah. I would just do pads and, and acoustic guitar because I played guitar and I had a pretty good piano sound and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I could do simple, more chambery sounding stuff or sort of Peter Gabriel type synthy yeah, stuff. <laughs> so that was the language, I guess, that I went into film composing with. And then when I got to Berkeley and I started really discovering how John Williams worked and discovering how orchestral music worked, um, I really got into it. It was late in my time at Berkeley when I met another student um, who would do mock-ups. And it never occurred to me to try to do a mock-up with a synth setup. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after I graduated, I was living at home with my folks over the summer to save up money to move to L.A. And I had... I had copied a ton of stuff from the library at the school before I left to study. So I had the conductor score to Close Encounters, and I loaded that into my my dad's music system, which by this point was computer-based, and, you know, studied the orchestration line by line. The flute, the piccolo, oboe, clarinet, English horn, blah, 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 straight on down the staff. Pines of Rome... Um, hoedown, you know, a d- bunch of different pieces, some Appalachian Springs, stuff like that. Right. And um, studied the orchestration and also started to sort of contemplate how am I going to be able to do believable orchestral sounding yeah, yeah. scores on a synthesizer. So let's talk about, you talk about, we've talked about building your sound and, and mm-hmm. everything. And uh, I want to kind of move that towards collaboration, which you mm-hmm. have, I think, one of the most awesome director composer collaborations oh. with Chris McQuarrie. Yeah. And um, you guys have done. How many films now? It's been three. Three. Plus a TV pilot that we did, which he wrote and produced. Right. Because, I mean, he's, he writes a lot more, than, and he's, he's kind of getting more into directing now than... Yeah, I mean, he know. started in the business as a writer. As a and he probably. won an Oscar for writing The Usual Suspects. Right. Which Brian directed. Right. And that he parlayed that into more of a directing career. Right. He had a film that he'd written about Alexander the Great, which was sort of his dream project. Mm-hmm. And... He was trying to get that set up to direct. But there were certain, I guess, stipulations, you might say, that he wanted as a director that were hard to win for your first film. Right, from the studio. Right, and (laughs) there was no way to make that film without studio backing. It was huge. And word got out that he was developing this. Stone, Oliver Stone, developed one as well at the same time. And they they ended up out of the gate, and it kind of shut down Chris's film. At the same time, you know, he was talking with Benicio del Toro one day about the trouble with Alexander, and Benicio was like, they want you to do a crime film, man. They don't want this history. They want the crime film. And so Chris uh, was like, fine, they want a crime film. I'll make a crime film. 
so that they'll never ask me for another one. Oh. And that was the way the gun. Wow. And so he was like, I'm just going to write the crime film to end all crime films for Chris McQuarrie. You know? Wow. And, <laughs> you know, the plot of the film is two down-on-their-luck criminals kidnap a pregnant woman who's carrying the surrogate child of a gangster. Right. Uh, and it's pretty nihilistic. It's pretty angry. Yeah. It's, um, you know... In a way, it's... A, I mean, I suppose you could look at any film as a veiled algorithm for the film industry. You right, know, if you right. look at If you look at sort of a, the desire to make a... Make an artistic film as the baby in the film. Yeah, yeah. And then you look at the criminals as sort of artistic, um, independent sort of... Independent-minded yeah, yeah. filmmakers. You look at the mafia and the, the gangster yeah, yeah. as the studio system, you know... Well, recently, there's a, a John Favreau made a movie, Chef, and I think that's a perfect allegory, too. It's about a guy who's sick and tired of working in the big business uh, restaurants, and he opens up a food truck because he wants to do Same. something small. Except, right. And, you know, he's a director of Iron Man, and, and yep. he gives that. Yeah. So you see where it's... Yeah, well, yeah. you know, when you, when you watch the bit they did with... He did a thing with Tony Hawk on MTV, mm-hmm. and they were talking about Iron Man. Right. Two, yeah. and how they had to go into production without a script, and he was just like, I'm never doing this. And you could tell it was sort of... Right. Wearing it was exhausting him. You know what I mean. Really? So I can see why yeah, you know. Chef feel like it was born of that. So yeah. It's a similar thing. Yeah. Right. So uh, way of the gun was a tough sell to begin with. On top of it, there was a conflict over whether to market it as sort of from the guy who wrote the Usual Suspects. The right. feeling being, if you play up suspects, you sort of inadvertently promise the audience some kind of twist in the yeah, film. Yeah. Film. Right, yeah, yeah. and Chris didn't want that. He does. It's not a film built on a twist. Right. It's a film built on relationships and small revelation. Yeah. Revelations right. that occur in a group of people who who are far too incestuous right. for their own good. Yeah. And so marketing was a challenge. The other thing, of course, which Chris and I have run into on all our films is the conflict between our love of the 70s mm. and that aesthetic and selling the film, making a film in that style and selling it for what it is right. versus a marketing perspective, which is we're not really interested in what the film is. We're just going to sell it as a product. Right, right. And, you know, I understand that. Movies are expensive to make and the studio has a right money, yeah. to recoup their investment. The, tra- the challenge is doing that without pissing off the audience. Yeah. You know, for example, Jack Reacher... The marketing campaign for that used like an electric guitar right. and sort of I music that sort of felt a little bit Mission Impossible. Yeah, it sounded very different than what the film was. And the film was not that at all. No. The film is really a police procedural or yeah. a thriller, but it was kind of sold like an action movie. Yeah. You know, Way of the Gun, you know, yeah. the, the trailer was filled with like violent femmes and sort of like 90s grunge. Yeah. And it was sort of sold like a Tarantino esque. Hip Now movie. And in fact, what it really was was more of like a peck and paw homage, (laughs) you know, without any slow motion. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Mission Impossible 5, you guys, I mean, came together to, you did Rogue Nation with, uh, I'm sorry, you did Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise with his production company, and that built on this, you know, for this collaboration with with him. And, uh, but the thing what happened here is that it was supposed to come out in December. Right. And then the movie got pushed to July. Right. Did they... Did that completely f up your schedule, or, <laughs> or did you were you or were you able did he give, did you have enough time to do yeah. this in the 
the way you wanted to. So I had enough time to do what I wanted. Um, the challenge in the chain, well, the the, the schedule changed for a number of reasons. Right. Probably the biggest being the space movie that's coming oh, out yeah, in five some days. Small movie coming it's out. It's a sequel to Return of the Jedi, actually. Right, yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, everybody was when that trailer came out. The first trailer, everybody right. was like, "I think we're gonna." Um, Especially since, you know, this was an action film and the audience was maybe a similar demographic. demographic, It's not like we were putting out, um, you know, a biopic. Yeah, or a lot of action too. (laughs) So, but the other concern was that there was, the fall had a lot of spy movies. We had Man From U.N.C.L.E., Bridge of Spies, Spectre, and we would have been fourth out of the gate. And we were just... Everybody was really... Tom and Chris were really proud and really excited of what they'd gotten. Right. They were in the finishing stretches of filming and really felt like we want the film to have the best shot it can have. Right. And moved the film. They made the decision... They started talking about moving it back in November of 2014. Mm-hmm. I think they announced the move in January or February. Yeah. And then... Um, that meant instead of moving to London in May to start working on the score, I just moved in February. But I had sort of kept my schedule clear. I didn't really have anything lined up, so it right. was okay. Um, and I still had the time I needed. You know, working with Chris takes a little longer than working with other directors mm-hmm. because Chris doesn't use temp score. So um, he gave you a clean slate for this. There was no music. You didn't edit to any music? Nope. Wow. Well, his feeling is that when you cut to music in the cutting room, mm-hmm. you risk having a false sense of confidence in what you got on the set. And okay. he's pretty brutal. I mean, he's brutal to himself as much as anybody else. Right. I did not get it. I need to recut it. I need I need to cut it till it works without music. I need to cut it till it works in their performances and their dialogue. Wow. And what happens with temp music on a Chris film is that eventually the film needs to be tested in front of an audience. Right. And you can't show it without music. The right. film will lay there and die. And so, at that point, the music editor is brought in to build a temp score that matches the movie as closely as possible. So the film is not cut to music. The music is cut to the film. So in some cases, because I I go to those focus group screenings sometimes, so in some cases, if they... They'll just put it in there. It doesn't suggest that they edited to it. They just make well, it. I don't know what other directors. Right. Most directors, that's not the case. Right. Most directors cut do. to it. Yeah. But if you went to a test screening of Mission Rogue Nation, yeah. you would have heard a score that was built for that test that's screening. Right. Okay, cool. And sometimes there are elements that they put in there that Chris likes and will say to me, you know, there was a piece in the temp score mm-hmm. that I don't want you to copy it, but, right. you know... I think the tempo was right, right, and the feeling was right. Right. So we had been, let's say, we had been talking about doing something slower or different, you know. Yeah. And then he would say, you know what? Having seen the temp, I think I'd like you to speed it up and change it, right? Make it darker. You know what I mean? Right. Um, what's nice about the way Chris works is that the film itself has its own rhythm. Um, you know, the opening cue to American Beauty right. was like an editor's favorite for years. And you would see movies, any movie that sort of had a family in it, the establishment of the family in the film used, was tempted with American Beauty. And they all had the same rhythm. You could have taken the score from any of those scenes and interchanged it with another score from another movie tempted with the same music, and they all would have fit. And so you ended up with every movie kind of feeling the same. It was very subtle. It's sort of subconscious. But you're like, this doesn't feel 
different. You know what right. I mean? And what's nice about Chris's films is that they feel different. You right. watch it and go, I don't feel like I've seen this before. Yeah, and I think yeah. some of that is that sense of rhythm. Right. Um, and your score did stand out, I think, in its own way, of course, for, for Rogue But when you guys started, was, were there talks about, okay, let's, do you even look at like, what did Hans do? What did Danny Elfman do? Right. What did Giacchino do? Are we going to do something in the vi- kind of... Kind of dovetailing from kind of how Giacchino stylized it or do you want to have its own thing completely in its own bubble? I mean, how was kind of that approach for that? I had seen all four when they came out. Right. When I got the gig, I sort of said, I don't want to watch them if I can help it. Right. I'd really rather not. Yeah. I was very comfortable going back and looking at the TV show. Right. As and much as the TV show. That. Well, yeah. yeah, as much as the TV show as Chris and Tom wanted. Right. When I got the job, I was flown out to London during production to help supervise the shooting of the opera sequence. Right. Because they needed a music person on the set. And it was during that first trip that, you know, I had my first chance to talk with Tom about music for this film and talk with Chris about it. And the message I kept getting from both of them was retro and percussive. Mm -hmm. And so when I got back to L.A. after that first trip, I started doing work, you know, against rough cuts of certain scenes. I started doing work at the piano. I started sketching out ideas. And I sort of came to a conclusion that I wanted to try to write a score that Lalo could have recorded in 1966 when he did the pilot. Wow. And I just thought that would be a cool way to keep the thing retro like Chris and Tom wanted without it feeling like a pastiche. Right. So I could use any techniques I wanted. Like right. Lala wasn't necessarily using a violin bow on a on a gong. Mm-hmm. But he could have. Yeah. That equipment existed. Whereas I didn't want to use like stylus and Ableton Live and Omnispheres because that was not a texture that would have been available to right, him right. at all in those days. So I liked what Danny and Hans and Michael had done. I liked what all every they'd all tried different things, right. and They're all different you know, I thought they were all successful in their own way. Yeah. Another thing that I seem to recall Chris saying is that we're not really making a sequel to those movies. We're making right. a, a a continuation of the TV show, and so I really felt like what they did in the show is what I wanted to uh, reflect right. more than what had been done in the previous movies. Um, and the other thing, just from a personal point of view, is I didn't want to rip them off. And I knew if I studied those movies too closely, yeah. I'd be I'd pick up things and I go, "That was cool what he did there. I'm going to do that in my movie." Right. And, even subconsciously, you might have right. That, yeah. and you know, if I was going to do that, I would much rather have done it based on what Lalo did in the beginning than right. what these guys were doing kind in the film. Yeah. So you ended up working with probably one of the most recognizable themes mm-hmm. in, in music history, film, and television history. Um, and as I talked about this with Lauren a little bit when the first episode we did this for Terminator. I mean, you yeah. deal with that thing. And, you know, I, I bet met Thomas Newman and talked about Bond and his, that theme. And a lot of the responses were, oh, we just put that thing over here and it's its own thing. But it seems like for you, you embraced Lalo's thematic stuff and really built that into the DNA of your score. You, mm-hmm. didn't, you didn't treat it as a little special treat every now. It kind of felt like... Right. Like a huge part of your sound. I mean, how did you approach utilizing... Well, my main concern was that I'd seen a a number of films, contemporary reboots, remakes, new sequels to franchises with popular themes. Right. And it had been a case where the original composer didn't come back. And the composer that was brought on 
did their own thing, right. and then used... They, they sort of paid homage to the original, right. yeah. almost as if it was a, as a hit record, and yeah. they just dropped it in the movie as a hit record. Right. Maybe the most um, glaring example in terms of the contrast would have been Goldeneye, mm-hmm. which, you know, not nothing against Eric Sarabi, yeah. but his score was very synthesizer-y, textural. Very different than what And then when the tank sequence came in, they sort of dropped in the orchestral... That was, that was against his, his will. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. and again, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying, like, yeah. and that, that contrast I found very sort of jarring. Yeah. And that's happened again in other films since then. Right. And I just didn't want it to feel like I wasn't, I didn't want a big contrast between my music and the Mission Impossible theme. Right, so you couldn't pick it out, like, you know. Partly because I didn't want to be accused of being, you know, lame compared <laughs> okay. to how great Lalo is. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I really tried as hard as I could to make it all the same level of quality. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Similar with the Pacini. You know what I mean? I didn't want it to feel like, oh, here's this masterful opera yeah. and this sort of schlocky score that they chucked in yeah, on either yeah. side of it. You know what I mean? So I worked really hard to make the thing feel cohesive. Well, so my way of doing that was to just sort of pretend that I wrote those themes. I gave myself permission to pretend I wrote those themes. And I scored it as if... Another big influence on me in terms of sequel scoring has been John Williams. His scores for the Jones sequels and the Star Wars sequels and prequels. And the way that the... And the way that the musical language, the vocabulary that he built, if you look at every character's theme as a word, right. he doesn't sort of plunk in the exact same sentence in every movie. Yeah, yeah. He uses the words to write new sentences. Right. And that's what I wanted to do. So in the way that he would hint at Darth Vader's theme in the prequels, I wanted to do with Lalo's themes. And part of the way of doing that is to figure out what are the recognizable bits of those themes and how much do I need to give the audience in order to sort of right. clue them in? Mathematically speaking, there's not a lot of Lalo in the score when you really break it down and you go through and right. look at the number of notes I wrote in the score and the number of notes Lalo wrote. Right. Really, except for the main title and the curtain call, there are no direct, full-on quotations exactly. but of the theme but in the film. It feels like it's there, ever-present right. throughout, which is... Well, what I did was I sort of said, okay, he's got this sort of syncopated rhythm. Yeah. Well, I can I can do a theme and variations on that syncopated right. rhythm. Now it's new material, but I've started there, so it feels like it's sort of similar. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. if you actually sit down and look at it, you go, oh, I see, it's ch- he's changed oh, it. That's, that's not yeah, the, done, yeah, done, and then it, right. after the first two, it kind right. of maybe it'll change a bit. Yeah. Right. Or it's in 4-4 four, four instead of 5-4 or 7-8 right. or 6-8 or whatever. You know right. what I mean? Um, or it goes, it's upside down. Or it's stretched out. So it's four measures long instead of two measures long. You know what I mean? Um, I gave myself permission to sort of play games with it and, you know, do little tricks. Sometimes, you know, I would have a theme and the the last three notes of the theme would sound like the first three notes of the Mission Impossible theme. Uh So there's a scene where Brant is, Jeremy Renner is talking to Alec Baldwin, Mm -hmm. uh, Hunley, on the phone. And it plays his theme, and then the last three notes are the Mission Impossible theme. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I sort of will tie the two together. 
Right. Um, <laughs> and again, it was just, I didn't want it to feel like Joe Kramer, Joe Kramer, Joe Kramer, Joe Kramer. Lalo Schifrin! Joe Kramer, Joe Kramer, Joe Kramer, Joe Kramer, Joe Kramer. You know what I mean? So if the whole thing sounds, you know, hopefully I elevated the Joe Kramer without diminishing the Lalo Schifrin. You know, so. Anyway, that was the philosophy behind the approach. Okay, that's and that's how I took it from it. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. I don't know if you ever, another, and I don't know who wrote the score for it, but there was an N64 Mission Impossible game. Oh, yeah? And it was... And it, it, it reminded me a lot of the way you approach this one. It's wow, I'll have to dig that up. I've yeah. never played it. I don't yeah. know it. It was it's a, a the history behind it. They they got the rights for it, and and the, the guys lost the rights because there really hasn't been any Mission Impossible games. You know, right? Was, That'd be fun to do a game. Yeah. I'd love that. So it's 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 looking up. You can look up uh, gameplay on it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fun. That's <laughs> fun. I'll check that out. But it's all sort of general MIDI, right? Like it's that N sixty four MIDI sound rather than. Then orchestra, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, but the way they, yeah, they utilize the themes, and yeah. the way kind of they wove it into the, uh, it reminded me, a little yeah, bit of the way cool. He it. Yeah. It's very much like how Williams does sequels. Right. You know, he owns those themes, he wrote them, so right. he gives himself permission to do whatever he wants with them. And as the composer of a Mission Impossible film, you should be able to utilize. Well, that. I, you know, yeah. I gave myself permission, right. Which is why I want to do a Star Wars movie. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the door is open, hopefully. You got Desplat is now the, the first composer who's going to be doing a Star Wars film. Live action, yeah. Live action. Well, actually, I guess, yeah. I mean, Peter Bernstein did the Ewok movies. Right. Kevin Conner did uh, Clone, Clone Wars. Wars. But yeah, Desplat's the first one doing, or Desplat. It's the, the first one doing the um, a live action Star Wars movie. The main canon one, yeah. yeah. So, well. Yeah. Well, Disney certainly paid enough for the license. I suspect they're going to be making a lot of these movies, and you know, I hope eventually. Well, I think it's the idea is two a year, similar to Marvel. Hopefully. Yeah, I think a main canon one and then a side one. I think right. right? So, so, so there's a lot of content. Yeah, it's going to need to be scored. <laughs> oh, fingers crossed. <laughs> Looking back uh, at any one of your projects or anything, are you kind of type of guy who would catch it on TV and go? Ah shit! I should have done something different. Oh, I wish I could have changed that. Are you completely? Is it completely exited your head once it's finished? And it's like, yep, that's what it is, and that's what it will be forever. Or do you kind of go like, well, it could have been fun if? Are you a what if person or a? That's done. That's a good question. Um, I would say if you'd have asked me this a year ago before I did mission, I would have told you that I was frustrated because I felt like I was capable of a certain kind of work right. and a certain degree of sophistication in my work mm-hmm. that I hadn't had an opportunity to display yet. Right. Mission has been supremely gratifying in that I was finally able to sort of write deft, action-driven music Give with, you you know, with frenetic yeah, yeah. ostinatos and brassy right. crescendos. You know, that's sort of, as a kid, what I loved about Raiders and Superman and Star Wars, I was able to bring some of that with my own voice to a film, which I've been dying to do, and I finally got the chance. So, having had a chance to do that, I can now look at work like Way of the Gun and Jack Reacher and a lot of the television work I've had to do using samples and say, that's all a step in the ladder to Mission Impossible. Right. Um, I mean, whether I wish I'd done differently or not, it's yeah. done. Right. It's out there, so I can't really change it. Yeah, you know, it'd be fun from a certain. There's a part of me that would love to sort of update 
my work on Way of the Gun mm. and do a new recording of it. Not as a replacement for the original, but as sort of like an enhancement. Yeah. Like uh, uh, well, like, to actually re-record it. Um, you know, we were compromised in a lot of ways on Way of the Gun, right. both by my relative experience in the business and our budget and our mm. schedule and sort of with the experience I have now to be able to revisit that and re-record it. But, by the same token, it wouldn't be... I wouldn't do that for the film. Right. I wouldn't do that to of replace course. the score in the yeah. movie. It would just be to have, like, a CD, a new version to yeah. listen to. And I think John you know? Powell actually... I talked to him, and he's he had that idea. He wants to go back and revisit some of his older m- movies and re-record a suite. Kind of right. Like, Maybe that, yeah, yeah. You know, like, um, what's it called? Like The Reavers by John Williams, yeah. or The Cowboys. Now, right. those original scores are very much rooted... In the recording sound of the time they were made. Right. But his Boston Pops versions of those are much more contemporary right. sounding. So that's an example. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I listen to Way of the Gun now, and I don't know who I was when I wrote them anymore. Does that really? make sense? Like, you don't I suppose, the person who wrote in, a sense, in the same way, maybe if you were to go back and read, like if you ever went to summer camp in grade school and you were to go read a letter you wrote home to your yeah, parents yeah. and go, I don't know who this kid is that wrote this thing. You He's know what I mean? So much or maybe college, yeah, yeah. you know, where it's a little more articulate. But, you know, way of the gun to me, I, I, I think I would never decide to solve this problem that way right. today. Today I would solve it in a totally different way. Right. Not better or worse, just different. Right. Um, so part of me sort of admires the different approach I took back then. Yeah, yeah. And part of me goes, I wonder, you know, or if I was in, if I was given the same situation today, I wonder what I would do. Yeah. I don't really have regret. I don't look yeah, at Wave yeah, the yeah. Gun and go, oh, I wish I'd done it differently. Right, or, right, you know, right. there's occasionally a few things where I shouldn't say occasionally. There are often things when I go back and listen to stuff later, I go, oh, you know. Now that I've got some time between me and that project, I wish I'd modulated here. Right. You know, I left myself in the same key for a minute too long. You right. know what I mean? Things like that. But they're thing. But you know, when you do a movie, you don't just sort of do it and it's done. It goes through so many other oh, people yeah, who yeah. chip away at it and and improve it. Right. You know, and change it. That if it gets to the stage and gets to the audience, the way. How it got to the audience has gone through so many steps of approval by right. different people that it's kind of hard for it to be totally awful. Right. Yeah. Especially if you're not like an auteur. Right. It's very difficult for it to be totally awful. Right. Unless everybody you're working with just can't see the forest for the trees. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Or if you're working with somebody who has so much power that they don't have to listen to anybody else. Right, right. You know what I mean? Right. So let's talk, uh, talk about, I mean, you scored one of the biggest action movies of the year uh and and you know summertime that was in a big summer movie i mean an action is kind of one of the most popular genres i would say uh what what do you think is the state of i mean action music in general in terms of we have like superhero movies now they're kind of coming out of our ears and these big franchises Mm -hmm. and 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 a lot of things is about getting you know quickly done and using different techniques whether it's electronic synthetic orchestral i mean you went full orchestral i mean you went kind of big bold that way but what do you think of the state of maybe right. not even action music but the state of music in terms of big budget right. studio making these days I will f- specifically in the case of Rogue Nation mm-hmm. the score was entirely acoustic right. there were no electronic instruments of any kind in the film at all right. 
we did use computers to edit the various takes together, which gave us some options that Lalo wouldn't have had in 66. Right. But if you had enough time, you could have recorded this score in 66 and it would have sounded essentially the same. Right. Um, action music today, well, film music, film scoring today. Right. Sorry. Uh, let me get my, gather my thought about sure. it, how I want to say this. Film music has always been a reflection of the time it was made in. Right. The, the scores of the 40s sound like the 40s. Right. The scores of the 60s sound like the 60s. Um, sometimes it's the fidelity, you know, a mono orchestra with no reverb yeah. sounds like the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Right, you know what right. I mean? A lush surround sound orchestra sounds like the 80s and into the 90s. A live orchestra with a serious synthesized component really sounds like the 90s and 2000s. You know what right, I mean? Right. And what we've seen is an evolution of a, of a sort of homogenized sound that is neither purely orchestral nor purely synthesized. Right. Um, and that seems to be what's sort of in vogue these days. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, you know, I think a lot about the sort of magic ratio of 85 and 15 that, you know... Uh, things tend to happen in that sort of division. Eighty-five uh percent -huh. of computer users are are PC, fifteen or Mac. Eighty-five uh -huh. percent of the population drive economy cars. Fifteen percent drive luxury cars. You know, uh -huh. it seems to be one of those things like a golden ratio right, that permeates a lot. And I think that you know, eighty-five percent of the movies made these days want that sort of homogenized sound, where. It's clearly live players, and it's clearly they're mixed with samples. Right, right. So you've got um, horns that sound like 14 live players and a sample of 14, 14 horn players playing a, a monophonic tune right. over chords played by a gigantic string section that is both live and samples. Right. Uh, underscored with... Uh, a giant taiko, electric taiko drum that you can't tell if it's acoustic or a sample. Right. Hitting every cut, you know, maybe a loop. Maybe there's electric guitar in there, you know. Mm -hmm. That's a sound that I think is very in. It's yeah. been in for a while now, and it's sort of still the, the sort of go-to sound for movies. Do you, do you find yourself having to adapt to that and being forced to adapt to certain sounds as a composer if you're not working with someone like Chris no, yeah, yeah. and they're like saying oh we want this sound Joe you have to make this sound is it, is it the I would say it's I would say that the nature of my career has been that the biggest films I've done have been with Chris right the other films I've done have mostly been independent features or television work where budget has necessitated a certain has taken out the option for live orchestra right, right. which means it's all synthesizer whether it's sampled instruments or synthesized tones yeah. you know it's it's samples it's electronic right and it's much harder to create a hybrid acoustic electric sound if you're not using any acoustic instruments right, right. you sort of create a phony <laughs> acoustic electric sound right. using electric versions of acoustic yeah, instruments yeah. <laughs> long way around to this I, for whatever reason, the work that I've done with Chris has sort of become my identity as an A-list composer. Yeah. 
my identity as a B-list composer is much more varied. There's a lot more electronic stuff in there. I have nothing against electronic oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying it was a cool idea to me to do Mission Impossible the way I did it. Yeah, but I don't absolutely. think that's the only way to score a movie. I think right. Vangelis' score to Blade Runner is fantastic. You know what I mean? I think that what um, Soderbergh went with for Solaris, equally effective. Great. You know, drive. You know? Yeah. Um, my The sound on Chris's movies has been predominantly orchestral. And that sort of creates... A brand that yeah. Joe Kramer does retro orchestra. Right, right. So I would imagine that based on those credits, if you were making a film and you wanted a more, uh, uh, what what are we calling that sound? That mix of electric and acoustic. If you wanted that sound, yeah. I might not be your first instinct because I haven't demonstrated that in the big movies that I've done. Yeah, yeah. I have felt comp- I have. Um, I don't want to say I felt compelled. I have eagerly pursued doing work like that in the smaller films that I've done. I did a thing called The Temp Agency with a really great director mm-hmm. named Thomas Akimi, And that score is very much in that sort of Dark Knight, yeah. um, Zimmery, James Newton Howard vein where they mixed right. electronics and acoustics. Right. But, you know, it's it, it's not a project with the scale and scope of Mission Impossible in terms of the marketing behind it. Right. So no one's, <laughs> you know, obviously pe- the number of people that have seen Mission dwarfs the number of people yeah. that have seen the Temp Agency. Right, so those are the people that, people who don't know you may have meeting you for the first time through Mission Impossible, your music, that's going to be the sound they right. associate you with. You know, so I think, you know, my, the, and I think that... What I did in Mission Impossible, which is probably, if you were to divide, say, if you were to make, divide the industry into two camps, broad, this is a broad generalization, the John Williams camp and the Zimmer camp. Yeah. I'm in the John Williams camp. I would say Michael Giacchino's in the John Williams camp. I would say that Silvestri, you know, that's the sort of the orchestral guys. Right. And then the synthesizer orchestral guys. Right. And that side is probably more like a lot of people who work, who came up with Hans like John and Mark and people who junkie Tom, uh, you know, Debney sort of straddles the two, you know, he's, you know, he, um, I think Brian is more on the Zimmer side of things, Brian Tyler. And these aren't insults. These are just, you know, it's, it's, if you were to sort of generally, and I would say that 85% of the composers are on the Zimmer side and 15% are on the sort of more orchestral side. And therefore, all of those people on that side are all competing for 15% of the jobs. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's true. Yeah. Because they're the ones doing the sound. So, you know, and, and there and there's only 15% of the films are being made that need that kind of music. Right. You know. So for as a composer who is in the other side, it becomes a little bit more difficult to kind of poke your head through. Well, the challenge on the other side, the challenge on the sort of uh, Zimmer side is that um, it's such an established sound. Right. And so many people who come up through Hans's tutelage, you know, by necessity of the job, right. have to sound like one sort of vision. Right. And then when you step away from that to establish yourself as an independent voice, it can be tough because yeah, yeah. You've, you've, you've devoted yourself to sounding that way. Right. And if that's not the way you want to sound on your own, you know, it's in a way it's like being typecast as an actor. Sure. You know? yeah. If you were on a TV show as a soldier and you want to play a romantic lead, it might be tough to convince the audience of the world. (laughs) Yeah. 
I guess uh, to to wrap up, uh, let's talk about uh, what do you like to do outside of of your day job? <laughs> what, what are your hobbies besides? I mean, do you like to? I like to play video games. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I well, I have a twelve-year-old daughter. Oh, Thirteen now. Oh. Uh, time flies. And she's into Minecraft, and okay. she's playing Fallout Three right now on her Xbox. I'm a horrible father, <laughs> letting her play Fallout Three. Um, about two days into Fallout Four. So. Yeah, I bought it. I haven't opened it yet. Christmas break, you'll yeah. probably get into a game. Either that or Witcher Three, oh, or yeah. uh, um, <laughs> what's the other one? Phantom Pain. Although I'm friends with David Hayter, so I'm a little torn. I know, I, because I started it, and it I literally started about hours of it and then I stopped because yeah. I, I got kind of, kind of boring with it. <laughs> well it's just until you know they they fired David and replaced him with Keith or, Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Nothing against Kiefer but it's just sort of being it's, good friends with Dave for years. Yeah. Um, it's you know not, it's not I Dave. feel bad. <laughs> um, in fact David's one of the uh, director um, he had tried for years to get Watchmen made as a movie. Right. He wrote, he wrote the screenplay. Well, he wrote a screenplay, and he actually shot a scene from it as a test for a director's reel. Wow. And I did the music for that. Oh. And so that was fun. And in the end, they couldn't set the deal up with him as a director, and it ended up being Zack Snyder, right. and his writer came in and did some rewrites on it, but then when it went into the Writers Guild and they went and looked at all the different drafts, David... Right, name David's name attached, yeah. carried through. Um, David also made a short film as a director, which I actually acted in. So I still oh. act every now and then when somebody asks me to. I put zero effort into securing work as an actor. But if somebody asks me, you know, I'm such a ham, I'll go do it. You know okay, what I mean? Well, it's good to know for me then. Yeah, you know? Um, you know, I love the Beatles. Uh, a few years ago, as a sort of nerd side project, I remixed all of their songs. Um, it was an interesting project for me. The Beatles, you know, they recorded most of their material during the advent of stereo. Right. So they really mixed and mastered everything for mono. Uh-huh. The catch is, it's all in mono. Right. So like, for years, we've been listening to these stereo mixes. What would happen is the Beatles would record, say, Paperback Writer. They'd mix it in mono, and all four of them would be there push the bass up, push the guitar up, you know. Then they'd settle on a mix, and then that would be the mix. Then a week later, while they were on tour, George Martin and Jeff Emmerich would go back in and remix it in stereo. And the stereo mixes tended to be a little more conservative on the instrumental side, on the EQ side. They pushed the vocals a lot more forward. And they had what ended up being very unconventional panning, because nobody had sort of figured out what the rules of stereo were going to be. So you'd have all the drums sort of folded into the right channel. The bass would kind of be floating around. You know, another weird... Because it was all four-track recording. What you would have is one and two could be panned individually. Three and four was just a knob that said width. And all it did is control, like, how far left and right the image was. So you'd end up with things sort of floating at ten and two... This is all very nerdy. Right. In any case, it was fun for me because I went through and remixed everything so that the drums and bass were locked in the center, oh, okay. which really brought Paul and Ringo's performances as drummers and bassists to the forefront. And you I did this for the entire catalog. I did this for the entire catalog. Wow. Well, w- to what I could. Yeah. Um, you know, the first album is essentially just a mono album and yeah. what they call twin track, which is right. one track as voice, one track as instruments. I put the instruments in the center. And then I created sort of a fake stereo 
vocal track, uh-huh. you know, using uh, uh, sort of the same kind of plug-in that Capitol would use when they would make fake stereo records uh-huh. back in the 60s. But once you get into, like, Rubber Soul and Revolver, even Ticket to Ride, you yeah. know, a Help, Hard Day's Night, you could open things up a little more. And I didn't feel compelled to preserve the original sound of it in the sense of... I wasn't religious about it. I was like, I just want to make it sound good. Right. And if that means it sounds a little different than the original, you know, I just didn't add anything to it. Right. You know what I mean? Wow. So it was an interesting side project. Um, The other thing I'll do a lot is I'll study, you know, other composers' scores. I just just helped. I couldn't help by looking at this pile over here. Yeah, I know. You can't see it on camera, but it's... uh... A stack of uh, a lot of John Williams. Williams conducting <laughs> scores. It's some of the Hal Leonard stuff, yeah. and then some other more movie specific stuff, right. which I've been able to uh, look at for studying purposes. And I'll do mock ups of that stuff, and that helps me get familiar with my sounds and how I how I can sort of articulate certain gestures on synth right. and make them sound as real as possible. And that becomes handy when I start writing. An original score. Right. If I have something in my head, I sort of know. Okay, it, it'll even though it sounds kind of lame on synth, I know yeah. it'll sound right when it's live because I did the same thing with this John Williams cue. Right. I I, I used to work at Disney, and uh, we had uh, we worked in the Blu-ray department, the home you know, entertainment. Mm-hmm. So we had they would when we start working on the Blu-ray, they just dump usually a lot of the sessions and stuff uh, into a folder uh, for the score and everything because they build the menus and the bonus right around it and. Uh, sometimes you'd find the synth mock-ups of, say, The Incredibles. So it was, wow. It would be fun. To, I was just like, i got to listen to those. And I listen to them, wow. and it's just like hearing Giacchino's themes pre as a mock-up. It's so, I mean, it's, it's, they're funny because they're really bad sounding, but it's just kind of seeing the well, shape but, of the music. Right, but that's the, yeah, the yeah. strength or weakness of right. the library he's got. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the mock-ups for Mission, there's no mistaking that they're mock-ups. Yeah. But they sound like the finished cue. Right. You know what I mean? I'm pretty proud of that. Like, I had a great orchestrator named Matt Dunkley, mm. but I don't feel like Matt, I don't feel like I needed Matt to bail me out as right. a composer. Like, I've tried really hard to deliver something to the orchestrators that's as close to what it's going to be as I can get. Right, right. You know, I'm, again, like John Williams, you know, his sketches are the score. Right. It's not like he writes out a tune and puts chord symbols above it and gives it to Conrad Pope and says, here, orchestrate that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. His sketch is the whole thing worked out. Wow. But it's all on short score because mm-hmm. it's just so unwieldy to write everything out on a yeah. giant score. You know what I mean? Right. So another important question is, when are you seeing Star Wars? Ah, well. <laughs> you have your tickets yet? Um, I have tickets to the marathon at the El Capitan where uh-huh. they're showing all seven. Okay, are you doing that? Well, you know, somebody had the tickets and they couldn't use them. They're like, you want them? And I was like, yeah. And now the more I think about the reality of sitting there and watching all seven, the main issue being B.O. Yeah. You know? And also, I mean, El Capitan seats are like... I know. They're like the worst because yeah. it's, it's like a, an It's an older theater, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, they need a random like um, this. They're not the most comfortable. And the truth is, like, Blu-ray is so good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I have, you know, I've had opportunity to see all those movies with audiences as an adult right. in theaters. Yeah. So I'm, it, that's not as critical. But I may, I mean, at the very least, I'll go there and see the new one in, because it's going to be in 3D Atmos with, I think, the laser vision. Maybe right. maybe the new one's not in 3D yet. I don't know for that theater. But it's going to be that laser. 
IMAX projection. Yeah, they, the yeah. Dolby Vision. Dolby yeah. Vision. Which I haven't. Um, I think I'll probably end up seeing it Friday morning with my wife and my daughter because she's out for Christmas break by then. Yeah, that's so what I'm seeing it. My, yeah. my boss surprised. He's like, oh, we're skipping work. We're going to go see an 8 a.m. show Friday. Yeah, so, <laughs> you, know, as, you know, I had somebody offer me a ticket to Thursday night, but yeah. I just, I want to see it with my kid and right. my wife, so, yeah, yeah. you know, and I'm, I'll wait. Refreshed. Yeah. Yeah. I have midnight readings. I get too tired. <laughs> oh, see, I'm a night owl. I'd okay. actually be more refreshed right. at 1 in the morning than I would be at really? 8 in the okay. morning. <laughs> Um, you know, obviously I'm excited for it, you know, uh, the, ch- the challenge I have to overcome as a person, as a personal Star Wars fan growing up right. is this is the first thing they've done without any George Lucas yeah. since the holiday special. Yeah. And we all know how that turned out. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously I know Brian Burke, I know JJ cause of mission. Right. I don't, I have utter trust oh, yeah, yeah. in what they're going to deliver. They, so I'm really sort of ribbing them a little bit by saying that. <laughs> but there is a part of me that still feels like it's a little bit like Beatlemania or right. ELO. Yeah. It's none of the Beatles are in this out al- in this <laughs> Beatles album, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Paul, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, Han Solo's back and Princess Leia and Luke, but George isn't around. And I know people, people have their issues with the prequels. I'm not a prequel hater. You know, again, to use the Beatles metaphor, I think the original three movies are the Beatles albums and the prequels are Wings. And I don't know anybody who thinks Wings is better than the Beatles. Right. But, you know, there's Wings songs I like. There's parts of the prequels I like, you know. A lot of people hate Phantom Menace. I really like Phantom Menace. I think I have the most problems with Attack of the Clones. Me too. That's interesting. I agree with you 100%. I actually think Phantom Menace is the most cinematic of the three prequels. It feels the most like a constructed film. Right. And I actually think that the backlash of Phantom Menace in some ways may have stung and changed some of what the direction would have been for the clones and Revenge of the Sith. Um, And it'll be very interesting because for a long time I've sort of held the belief that when you looked at the series as a whole, Return of the Jedi was kind of an underwhelming finish to this story. It was a great finish to... Or, you know... uh, Within the context of four, five, and six, right, right, it was fine. But as sort of the resolution to Darth Vader's story at the end of this whole saga, yeah. it was like it's a bonfire. Yeah, you know, it's a part. It's a campfire. <laughs> What's nice is now it's that's not the ending anymore. Right. You know, um, and the other nice thing is that what you'll have is you'll have a six film arc right. about Anakin, and then it's sounding like, and I don't know, I have no inside information, right. but it's sounding yeah. like we're going to get kind of a six film arc about Luke. Yeah. Um, and they overlap in the middle three films. Yeah, yeah. Which will be oh, an interesting yeah, yeah. structure. It'll be interesting. I mean, yeah. I can't wait. I'm very excited, you know. I have to say, too, I loved, and I don't know how it plays out in the film, but I loved the notion in the trailer that uh, the exploits of the first, of the middle three films have sort of fallen into legend. Right. You know. It and all that, happened. It's all true. right, yeah. and that the empire or the remnants of the empire sort of suppressed it all, right? You know, well, so well, let me know how they think. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, they've. Tantalized us with a few clips of John's score, first one to be done in L.A. That's right. I mean, there was a sixty-minute. It's, it's tonight. tonight. Yeah. Tonight, yeah. Um, and I, I heard a few pieces from that. It was fun to see a lot of the guys who played on Reacher. A lot of the musicians who yeah, played yeah. on Jack Reacher are playing on Star Wars now. And what was great was doing Mission Impossible. A lot of those people had played on the prequels. Wow. So. That's awesome. 
Um, a funny story was when we were recording the score for Mission Impossible, my birthday fell within the round of sessions. Yeah. When they moved the film, we also lost the block of time we'd reserved in November and had to scramble to find dates in June. What we ended up with were four consecutive Sundays, uh-huh. which was a blessing and a curse. You know, we didn't get sort of the four days in a row where you build up a momentum. Right, right. Momentum. <laughs> it was harder to build up a momentum because our days were spread out. The flip side was Chris was able to hear something, put it up against picture, and then give me very specific notes about what to change. Right. So we did have a maybe more rewrites than we would have had, re-recordings than we would have had if we'd done everything in a block. Right. But Chris got exactly what he wanted, which was invaluable. As my birthday fell within this schedule, one day we were going to record a cue called The Syndicate, which is a very quiet cue, Mm -hmm. where Tom explains to Simon Pegg all the intricacies of The Syndicate and this whole plot. Without telling me, the music editor, John Finkley, and the orchestrator, Matt Dunkley, had put the main title to Star Wars on all the musicians' stands. (laughs) So they were sending me click, and I'm going, this click feels fast for this cue. And then as I hit the downbeat, out of the orchestra comes the main title of Star Wars. And, uh, you know, my parents, I had my, my parents came to visit the session because, you know, my dad, as an amateur musician, I knew he'd love to see Abbey Road. And I knew my mom would just love to see me. So we, he was filming it with his phone, and you can see I jump back about a foot because it's just the sound. Yeah. But I'll tell you, if you ever get a chance to conduct the main title to Star Wars, <laughs> do it. Because it's the greatest sounding combination of yeah. instruments and notes that you'll ever hear. It sounds so good. That's awesome. And it's pointed right at your face. It's awesome. So that was great. That's awesome. That was a cool gift. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, I want to thank you for your time. It's been such a pleasure sitting here talking with you. and probably go for hours of chatting. Yeah. But, but... It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. (laughs) Tune in to All Access.